Thank you for downloading the Beacon Church podcast. We hope that you enjoy today's message and that you find that God speaks to you through it. Steve got something out of the last one, but um, yeah, I'm hoping inspiration to, to everybody. Um, before we start, I was just sitting there and I was looking around, <clears throat> and I know we're a little lighter on the ground today. And some of you might like, not like what I'm going to say because it's hot and you all like your own space. But do you think everyone could just move sort of into the middle so that we can all be together? You'll sort of see why, because the message this morning is a little bit around fellowship. or In fact, it's totally about fellowship. So it's, it just feels right that maybe we're all sitting together. Um, yeah, I know that's a challenge for some people. But, um, or get as close as you can. Get as close as you can. Thank you. That'd be great. Wasn't it good to hear um, from Junior there just a, a reminder of how England did yesterday? Um, not that we needed it. It's a, it's a, it's, it was a fantastic result. My voice is, is slightly going, so bear with me. I'm, I'm hoping it's going to hold out for all the cheering and, and the celebrating. Um, but it, it was, yeah, it's fantastic. And I just really um, pray that God doesn't leave it any longer than 52 years for England to, to get to that final and win it. Um, yeah, Lord, please don't put us through any more years of hurt. But it's coming home, right? It's coming home. <clears throat> okay, and aside. Today, um, I'm going to speak to you from Acts 2, from verses 42 to 47. But before we dig into this section, I just want to remind us all what Owen spoke about last week. Last Sunday, Owen preached from, the er- from earlier in this chapter, and there we saw the Holy Spirit descending with tongues of fire, and an amazing outpouring of the Spirit taking place. Disciples were declaring God's wonders in languages from other nations. We heard Peter explain to the crowd the gospel message of salvation, which cut them to the heart, and they were were to be baptised and to receive the free gift of the Holy Spirit. The passage ends with 3,000 being added to their number. What a day that was. We learned that in the DNA of the church... From the very beginning was a community filled with the Holy Spirit and that God dwelt in them. That it was a community set up to reach the world, sharing the gospel message far and wide, and a community to which people were added, and that the people who joined the church were genuine believers. That they joined the church for one reason, because of Jesus. So earlier in the week, I'd finished my draft of this morning's talk, and I thought I'd run it by my wife, Petra, so it's always good to do that, especially for me. And I wasn't even halfway through before I'd realised that she had her eyes closed. Now I assumed she was just concentrating very hard. But with a gentle nudge, it turned out that she'd actually fallen asleep. Her honest feedback, and this is why I love my wife, was that it was so boring she couldn't stay awake. So I do... I do <laughs> After that, I do actually want to honour Petra because she does an incredible job for, for lots of things I do. When I do the church newsletters, other newsletters, she proofreads, she spell checks, she gives input. And like, literally, I don't know how I do, I don't know how I would do half the things that I would do without her. So it's, it's good, isn't it? It's good to have those of us that have got wives there. They're good. It's good to be married. And I, and I really do thank God for Petra. <clears throat> um, yeah, so. Um, I'm going to, yeah, so there I was, sorry, starting from scratch on Wednesday morning. Uh, and now I'm, 
I'm really praying that God will give us a Pentecostal impartation of the Holy Spirit, particularly on me, so that we can all stay awake and hear what God's got to say to us this morning. So let me start with prayer. Yeah, Father God, we thank you um, that you have the victory. We thank you that we can rely on your spirit, that your spirit came at Pentecost and it came in power. Lord, we thank you that 3,000 were added to your number. And we thank you that your Holy Spirit transforms lives and it transforms hearts. And we just pray now that you will speak to us through this short message, Lord, and and that we will go from here today having just a deeper understanding of what it is to be a follower of you. Amen. Okay, so let's get started and have a look at what this passage says today. And I'll read it to you. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe and the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to one another who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes, and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favour of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So in this passage in Acts 2 is a description of what the early church must have been like. It was a truly fascinating time. It must have been amazing to have been there and to experience what it was like. They were so consumed with Jesus and the revelation of his message that he caused a reaction in them, a change in their behaviour and their disposition. And as we look at this passage this morning, I want to look at the word fellowship and see what the early church did in regards to fellowship in four different ways. Giving freely, meeting together, eating together, and praising God together. They devoted themselves to these things, and God added to their number. So let's start off by looking at the word fellowship in a little little bit more detail. The NIV section of this section, you know the little bit at at the top, the little heading that gives you a little summary, it says the fellowship of believers. And in verse 42, it says they devoted themselves to fellowship. So what does this word fellowship, what does it actually mean? See, to me it was always one of my least favourite words growing up in a church environment in the 1980s. It conjures up images for me of tambourine playing or of old people having tea and sandwiches. Now don't get me wrong, I'm a big fan of tambourines and sandwiches and old people. But, yeah, it just, it's just a perception that I had of fellowship at the time. One popular songbook at the time was actually called Songs of Fellowship. Does anyone remember that one? Yeah, there's a few of us that are old enough. Now, there was a couple, few classics in there, wasn't there? Shine, Jesus, shine, and be bold, be strong. But that said, there were some pretty terrible ones in there as well. Um, so the, the, the word fellowship has always had this cringy, slightly boring sound to it. So that was just my take on it. Another example of fellowship... Um, is, is my wife Petra. She's got a group of non-Christian friends, non-church friends, and they have a, a WhatsApp group. It's a group of friends, and they call themselves The Fellowship. Um, they're pretty tight. They chat to each other a lot. They text a lot. They meet up quite regularly. They buy birthday presents for each other. 
And after a, a really thorough vetting process, I was actually allowed to join this fellowship group, which was, which was a real honour, because it's quite selective. But I actually turned them down because I've just got so many WhatsApp groups, I just was like, no. So hopefully I didn't offend them. But that's, how, that's what they do. That's how they, those guys do fellowship. For me, it was the, the film by J.R. Tolkien, or, or the book, the film, The Fellowship of the Ring, that really gave the word fellowship back its street cred. I actually had a dream about Lord of the Rings the other night. Turns out I was talking in, in my sleep. Yeah. Jen, maybe, where's Jen? She could probably book me for the next comedy night after that. For those that don't know the story of the Fellowship of the Ring, though, it was a, it was a group formed as a response to the threat of the Dark Lord Sauron, who was attempting to take over the known world. They needed a band of fearless individuals to join them on a mission that would take them across Middle-earth and into the fires of Mount Doom. They were known as the Fellowship, and they consisted of nine members, four hobbits, two men, one elf, and one dwarf, and one wizard. Now, if you're interested in a geeky bit of trivia, the Fellowship is the only known organisation or group ever formed in the history of Middle-earth to hold members of each of these races within it. So Owen would be impressed with the level of diversity here. The journey through Mordor, where they hoped to defeat Sauron, and then across the Misty Mountains, and then into the former dwarf kingdom of Moria. The journey was fraught with difficulties, and they encountered trolls, orcs, a slimy golem creature. And finally, there was betrayal at the end, when one of the members, Boromir, he succumbed to temptation and tried to steal the ring from Frodo, the unlikely hero of the story. Frodo and his best buddy Sam, they managed to escape and the fellowship is dissolved on the banks of the river that day. So it was strong for a bit, but it, it didn't last. See, these guys, they went deep. They crossed mountains, they were in blizzards, they were fighting ogres and giant spiders, sacrificing their lives for each other. And they even sang songs together, or at least the hobbits did. Doesn't sound too different to an evening in Godpod, does it? Now that is an exciting concept of fellowship to me. But which of these mentioned illustrations of fellowship do we think is closest to Luke's understanding of fellowship? Let's have a look at some of the characteristics that Luke describes in this passage and see how the young church compares to his understanding of fellowship. Let's start off with my first point, which is common people. So the first characteristic of the young church I want to draw out is that they were common people. So if you're a little bit older, like me, and there's probably one or two of you that might be, you might immediately think of that famous song in the 1990s by Pulp. Does anyone know that? It's the one that goes like, wait for it. You'll never live like common people. You'll never live like common people do. And he's got a bit of a swagger, hasn't he? He's got his arms behind his back. Um, yeah, one of my favourites, but um, Matt, was that get, get me into the worship band, do you think? Maybe a bit of auditioning. It's because my voice is a bit croaky, I think, otherwise I might have carried it off. So, yeah, that was, that was them. They were talking about common people, and really for some people it's, it's slightly uh, a derogatory term. Uh, it's used for someone who looks down on other people, for viewing them as commoners, ordinary folk that have no special qualities. And as a matter of fact, these Christians, these young Christians, were mostly commoners or common people. They would have been ordinary fishermen or teachers or masters and slaves gathered together by one common purpose. 
their understanding of Jesus Christ as Saviour. And it's this common purpose that I'm actually referring to with this ambiguous title. You see, the Greek word for fellowship is koinonia, which translated in this context means to have in common. So these guys had everything in common, including their money and their possessions. This seems to be what Luke is initially referring to when he talks about fellowship, that they sold their property and their possessions and gave to anyone who was in need. Now, there can be two approaches to this quite challenging portion of Scripture, both of which I would suggest aren't helpful or accurate. One of them is to dumb down what is said and argue that this kind of living, the selling of all your possessions and giving to those in need, was only for Christians at the time, and it isn't relevant now. However, there are too many references by Luke alone that suggest followers of Christ are to live differently to those around him. In Luke chapter 10, he recalls the story of the Good Samaritan, a selfless act of compassion towards the injured traveller. The rich fool in chapter 12, who stores up riches for himself in heaven and consequently is struck down. The great banquet in chapter 14, where we see the poor are invited to replace those who have declined the invitation because they let riches get in the way. Then, of course, there's the shrewd banker in Luke 16, which sees the steward use his master's riches for his own personal advancement, and the rich man, rich man and Lazarus in chapter 16, where Lazarus, who is poor in life, has blessings in eternity, while the rich man who puts his faith in material possessions fares less well. See, in all these parables, Luke clearly addresses our attitudes towards money and possessions. So using Jesus' teachings, we can clearly see that these parables are intended to be as relevant now as they were today. Then the other approach is to suggest that we all sell our houses, our cars, our furniture, and everything that we have of value, and give those proceeds to those that are in need in our community. Do you think you could do that? Petra and I, for example, we're in a very fortunate position where we own our own house and we're about to sell it, God willing. And I know I would really struggle with the thought of giving all that money away rather than finding ourselves a new home. Now the truth is, there was no mass sale of goods when new Christians joined the church and neither was it mandatory by the apostles. We know houses were still owned by some and as we read later, they met in each other's homes. So clearly some, but clearly something motivated people to give away, or some people to give away, their money and their possessions. So what was behind this intense generosity? It was simply that they had encountered Jesus. It was such, in such a real and tangible way that it was a natural outworking of the Spirit in them. It was an expression of fellowship and it produced a totally new attitude to poverty. They were not motivated to amass wealth for themselves, but rather to view resources as disposable for the cause of Jesus and the care of the people. Luke recalls his story, and he thinks what they did was praiseworthy. He recorded them as it reflects Jesus, loving others as we love ourselves. Rather than inflict fear or obligation, this story should really excite us. And what in our lives inspires this kind of generosity? 
Jesus says a man's life does not consist of his possessions. And it's foolish to build bigger barns, but to lose your soul. And we've got the antidote here in verses 44 and 45. All the believers were together and they had everything in common. They sold properties and possessions to give to anyone who had need. So to love one another, to be bonded together, that then, that's where where there is need and what you have, to feel that what you have isn't really your own. To love your neighbour as yourself. Now I know there are many in this church who give really, really generously. And there are many examples that I've heard of in modern church living where people give really, really abundantly. One example is my sister-in-law and they were having a real tough time I remember they had a dishwasher that was broken. Now, you might think dishwasher is a bit of a luxury item, um, but if you, if you met my four nieces and nephews, who are so messy, you'd understand that actually it's really helpful to have a dishwasher in your house. Um, and a couple in their church actually went out and they bought themselves a dishwasher. They needed a new dishwasher. And they bought two. They bought one for my brother and his sister-in-law as well. What an, an amazing example of generosity. I know of other people. I know of someone that used to come to this church they now go to another church. Someone in that church bought them a flight home to see the wife's family because they just couldn't afford it and they hadn't been home for ages. There are other examples in, in lots of churches where people have been given cars, where people have been given anonymous gifts worth thousands of pounds. And I know some of these examples in our church. How wonderful is this? On Friday, I was working with a great charity they're called Acts 435. And their service allows charities to work with vulnerable people, such as food bank and cap clients. And so how it works is you put an application form on the, on the website and you say what you need, what, what are the things you really need. And then people from the wider church community then start to donate money until you've got the amount that you need to buy that particular uh, item. So I had a client and she hadn't washed for... I literally hadn't washed clothes. I think she had washed herself. But she hadn't washed clothes for four months. And which is, which is horrendous, isn't it? So he really, really needs a washing machine. So I've put this request up there, and I'm waiting to see what happens. But when the money comes in, I'm going to go, and I'm going to buy her a brand-new washing machine. What an incredible way to bless her. Acts 4.3.5 comes from the scripture in Acts 4.3.5, um, which we'll see, um, we may look at another time, but it says, God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all, that there was no needy, peace, no needy persons among them. From time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. See, this is kingdom living. This is joyful giving. This is a response to what God has done in them. And done for them. Some of you are hearing this and thinking, do you know, I, I couldn't do that. I, I just really don't have much to give. Then just remember the story of the widow that gave all she had. She gave two copper coins. See, God doesn't require us to give large amounts, but he does require us to give generously with what we have. The next section uh, is around they like meeting together. You see, every day... They continue to meet together in the temple courts. Another expression of being common people in this passage is the desire to meet together regularly. They met together for fellowship in the temple and they met in each other's houses and they did it daily. 
It wasn't enough to just meet Sunday once a week. I can imagine it was a bit like New Day. So we talked a bit about New Day this morning, um, and, and we've described New Day as a Christian festival where thousands of young people gather every year, including our own youth. And we're hoping to take around 30 from Beacon this year. When you go to these places, and for me, about 50 years ago, it was an event called Soul Survivor, um, so I've got some experience in, in what this is like. There was such a buzz, such an excitement. The, anno- the only annoying bit for me is putting up and down your tents. So I normally find someone like Bill or anyone else with a beard will probably do, actually, um, <laughs> to help me put the tent up. I try to imagine 3,000 new disciples turning up to the temple in a New Day context. As they approach the temple of the Big Top, they might have heard the distant strumming of harps to the tune of, that's why we move like this. As they entered, they would have seen Simon Brading and Sam Cox dressed in white togas with open-toe sandals, and Governor B, in those days probably known as Governor Beta, <laughs> reciting scripture in an East London accent. You get the picture. These new disciples would have loved meeting together in the temple to hear what the apostles were teaching. They, wouldn't have been hung- they would have been hungry to learn more. And I imagine that the incredible atmosphere, it just would have been amazing, 3,000 of them all rejoicing together. Junior mentioned this morning uh, the verse in Hebrews 10, verse 24 to 25. It says, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. At Beacon, we have opportunities to meet together, aside from a Sunday service. We have a midweek community group on a Thursday. We have groups that meet every other Saturday and every other Sunday. We have a women's coffee morning, a men's breakfast, and a women's brunch. Alpha courses, prayer meetings, Freedom in Christ, Friendship First, and events like the Comedy Night, Magic Show, and the Old England Game. If you aren't involved in any of these, particularly our regular community groups, I'm not going to say that you should go, but I do pray that the Holy Spirit prompts you, just like he did with these new disciples. A fantastic example of wanting to meet together regularly are Owen and Pauline. Almost every Sunday, they invite people around for dinner. And during the summer, they've had an open house. I think there's probably another couple of weeks to run on that, so if you've not had a chance to go, you can always pop down and see that. I spoke to Owen in the office only this week, I think, and he said he's going to really miss having those open houses when they're finished. What an amazing example that Owen and Pauline demonstrate and what a desire that they have for fellowship with the church community. It's good to meet together. Although I'm focusing on fellowship, it's worth noting that these new disciples also devoted themselves to teaching. The 12 apostles would have had a significant teaching role in the church. They would have passed on to new believers a full account of Jesus' life and teaching, much of which would have been recorded in the four Gospels. In addition to this, they would have helped provide a new perspective on the, on the New Testament, on the Old Testament rather. And they would have explained some of Jesus' prophecies that were fulfilled. Sometimes when I pick up my Bible, I have to confess that I have absolutely no idea what the text is saying. I might have to ask someone like Petra to see what she thinks. You can see a, a theme here, can't you? Uh, or maybe read a Bible commentary 
to see what, to get some more insight to what's been said. And this is good, and we should all read the Bible ourselves. But on some occasions, it's so much more illuminating when I go to Godpod. And I hear, which is our Thursday night community group, by the way, and I hear Peter and Lucy explain the Bible. It just is illuminating. It just brings the text to life. They have such a gift of teaching, and it makes it so much clearer. And of course, on Sunday, this is the best place to come and hear the Bible explained. So these guys, they, they gave generously and they loved to meet together. They also liked to eat together. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts. In the evening, they would have returned to each other's houses and continued meeting. To continue the New Day analogy, you can imagine the equivalent of Bill and Jen hosting, welcoming and feeding the hungry disciples as they take off their sandals and wash their feet. Our youth actually wear sandals and socks at New Day, which is not too dissimilar, just worse fashion. In this passage, the expression of breaking bread could actually refer to ordinary meals, which would be a furthering of fellowship, or it could be referring to the significance of the death of Jesus, which we know as communion. Some scholars differ on this, but it seems probable that they gathered together as, as one to remember the sacrifice Jesus made for them. This act of remembrance was done every time they met together. Now, not every church chooses to participate in communion every week, but you'd have seen today, as, as, as Junior so amazingly described, the victory that Jesus had. We, we do communion here every week, and I think it's this example that's set is as to why we do communion together. We're following that model of doing it regularly, every time we meet. <clears throat> After breaking bread in the form of communion, the disciples would have enjoyed a meal together. We had a great men's breakfast the other Saturday where we all ate together. Bill cooked a fantastic fry-up and Matt was very gracious and gave us the hospitality of his house. We had fun talking about life. We shared intimately and openly about what was happening in our lives. We gave thanks for the good things that God was doing and we prayed for one another and the church. And it was good This might be a similar experience to the early church every evening. We eat together a lot here at Beacon, and I hope hope we continue this with refreshments after church. We do football and pizza. We have community groups. We have community lunches, which, as you know, we have one after the service. We host one another in each other's houses. We have picnics in the park, and we're going to have a summer barbecue. It really is good to eat together. And isn't it great to be invited to someone else's house for lunch? And nobody minds what's on the table. A simple pasta with a ready-made sauce is actually fine. By the way, if anyone's thinking of inviting me, just so you know, I hate fish, I don't eat fennel, and I don't do mushrooms. But apart from that, anything else is fine. Seriously, don't let not being able to cook put you off from meeting and hosting. You can just ask Paul or Martin. I used to have them around every Sunday. We'd have pizza, wouldn't we? Basic stuff, but it doesn't matter. We have good fellowship. Jesus spent much of his ministry eating in people's homes. He ate with tax collectors, with the Pharisees, as well as the the well-known example of the Last Supper. It's his model of relational community that we're following here. Finally, they praised God together. You can see here that they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favour of all the people. The first Christians spent much time together before the Lord in prayer. They prayed privately, 
but they also prayed together as a group. Maybe they prayed that their friends and relatives would encounter Jesus, like they had. They had been praying for God's provision, and they may have been praising and just thanking God for what they'd done in, his life, well, in their lives. Once a month, at the crack of dawn, I somehow managed to get up and go to a monthly prayer meeting. It's the churches together, Brixton and Stockwell, they meet together at St Paul's Church, and I drag myself out of bed, and I'm bleary-eyed, and it is an effort, I tell you, to get down there. Especially, well, I find it difficult. But we meet there, and we pray for the ministries of CAP, and we pray for the ministries of Food Bank. And when I come out of that place, I am always re-energised, I am always inspired. It really is good to pray together. Whenever these disciples met, it seems like they did it with joy. The message version of the text says this, they followed a daily discipline of worship in the temple, followed by meals at home. Every meal, a celebration, exuberant and joyful, and they praised God. People in general liked what they saw. In our version, it says that, in the, in the NIV, that their hearts were glad, that they praised God, and they enjoyed favour. I read in one commentary that the church in Jerusalem was characterised by joyful celebration in all that they did. How this spirit of joy, joyful celebration praises and pleases God. This is the spirit we want to see in all our, all our activities and all our gatherings. Quite, quick, quite clearly, these weren't church meetings where they discussed, discussed politics, church politics, that is, or church rotors. I don't, think, I don't know if Jen's in the room. No offence, Jen. There is a place for that sort of thing, and thank you for all your hard work. But when they met together, they met to encounter God. It doesn't mean that every catch-up we need to be explicitly God-focused. But we see here people that were so saturated with God that they praised God with every opportunity. They might have been playing games or they might have been enjoying a walk together. But they would have been praising God for the fun that they were having. Are we radically God-centred that there is no difference between praying together and playing together? Owen said last week that worship is a response to being filled by the Holy Spirit. And that is clearly evident here. And at the end of the text, it says that God added to their number. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So in our passage, Luke described a community of believers that is a little different to tea and sandwiches that I had envisaged from my childhood. Rather than cringeworthy and boring, we deal with words such as exciting, exuberant and joyful. Also, the community described is more intimate than virtual friendships, like the fellowship WhatsApp group that I was invited to join. And the expression of love the young church demonstrates for each other is more radical than even a journey to Mordor with dwarves and elves. It's also more sustainable. The fellowship of the ring, which didn't actually last that long, because materialism destroyed them. They also desired the magic ring so much that they couldn't remain together. The reverse is true in Luke's description of fellowship, where they desire to give freely, often increased unity, rather than formed division. Whenever our young people come back from New Day, there's an atmosphere of excitement about them. 
They're bursting with God. They are overflowing. It consumes them and it excites them. And it's infectious. When they come back, you just want to be around them. To have some of what they have. Join a full week of New Day. They would have been devoting time to each other. Eating, praising God, and being filled with the Holy Spirit. Just like the early disciples at Pentecost. You see, the young church had been transformed by the message of salvation. And they received the Holy Spirit. And it is my belief that this type of community, modelling their faith and fellowship authentically, must have been deeply attractive to non-believers. Luke doesn't tell us that the apostles needed to have their arm twisted to gather the 3,000 and go out and get their unsaved friends to Christ. He simply tells us in chapter 5, verse 42, every day they continue to teach and proclaim the good news that Jesus is the Christ, both in the temple and in the houses. Non-Christians constantly came to the church meetings to find out more. And if we live this way, we will, they will certainly come to our meetings as well. Far from swamping the church, the 3,000 made it stronger so that not a day would go by without unbelievers being added to their number. It's important to recognise that it wasn't anything the apostles did for for God to add to their number. And at this point, I've got a confession to make. You see, when reading that God added to their number, I recognise that I rely far too much on my very limited ability to build the church rather than relying on God. Thursday afternoon, for example, I was worried that we might not get enough people to the comedy night, that we might not get enough people from Beacon, and that we might just be swamped with friends, which would be a good problem to have, wouldn't it? But I was just thinking, there's not enough of us to actually chat to people. There might be people sitting by themselves that just were not getting engaged by. And it transpired that my fears were unfounded, and that God provided exactly the right number of friends to be warmly hosted by our church members. And I realised I could be the same at church. I can be frantically looking around, seeing who's new, seeing who, who might just be feeling a little bit uncomfortable. But what I'm failing to realise is that it's, that, that it's God that builds his church. God added to their number. So do we really trust that God will add to our number here at Beacon and not us? I know by grasping this, it will help me to stop striving, avoid disappointment and strengthen my faith. See, the apostles, they were common people. They devoted themselves to fellowship, to giving gladly, to meeting regularly, to eating together often. And they were full of joy at what the Lord had done for them. Now, it's good to acknowledge that we can't live exactly like the church, that early church today. And neither necessarily should we. We live a bit differently today. And our lifestyles, our jobs, our family commitments just won't allow it. But nevertheless, this is a challenging text and it is very relevant. So what can we take away from this passage? Below are some questions to think about individually. What is our attitude to money? This is a matter of the heart. 
The disciples weren't instructed to sell their possessions, but they wanted to. It was an expression of love. Are there areas where money has a hold on us and where we need to give more freely? Do we enjoy meeting together? And if not, why not? Do we have an issue with someone? And if that's the case, prayerfully and graciously communicate that and ask for forgiveness. Or are we just not making enough time for each other? Maybe there are other friends that we're prioritising. We may have our cultural differences, but this passage says they had everything in common. As Owen has often preached, it is our common belief and love for Jesus that unites us. Are we hospitable with what we have? Are we opening up our homes and eating with one another? Matt said to me recently that he and Alicia want to use their home in this way. What a blessing that will be to their friends and to our church. And do we praise God in all we do? When we meet together or come to church, are we ready to praise God? Do we have a spirit of gratitude in us that whether we are singing songs on a Sunday or watching England in the World Cup, are we in joyful celebration of what he has done for us? And finally, it's good to remember that God is in charge. It was God that added to their number. Are we praying and trusting God to bring more people into his kingdom? Let me close in prayer. Lord, I pray we are a church of common people, one that is so full of your Holy Spirit that we devote ourselves to fellowship. Lord, will you instill in us generous hearts that lead us to share our resources with one another. Lord, give us such a divine love for each other that it overflows by us wanting to eat and spend time together. May we open up our homes with gladness and eat together with thanksgiving. Lord, may we remember your goodness to us and be a community that praises you in everything we do, gathering, gathering regularly with each other in prayer. And Lord, help us to remember that you are sovereign, that you will add to your number and we can do nothing in our own strength. Help us build an attractive community that glorifies you and we, and we pray that you will have many that don't know you to our numbers here in Beacon. Amen. You have just listened to a Beacon Church recording. If you would like more information about us, our vision, the team, or upcoming events, please visit our website, which is beacon-church.org. You can email us at office at beacon-church.com or find us socially on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You are welcome to share this recording as you wish, but please do not make any edits without express consent. Thank you.